0: Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. Welcome to the Safer Chemicals Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Elwan. Our scientific committees have had their last meetings of the year, and in this episode, we cover the outcomes of the risk assessment and socioeconomic analysis committees. Both prepare scientific opinions that are used by the European Commission and EU countries when they decide how harmful chemicals need to be controlled. Tim, the chair of the Risk Assessment Committee, and Maria, who chairs the Socioeconomic Analysis Committee, join me in our virtual studio. We'll start with the restriction proposed on the use of lead ammunition for hunting and outdoor sports shooting, as well as lead use in fishing tackle. Now here, the Socioeconomic Analysis Committee adopted its opinion on the costs and benefits, while the Risk Assessment Committee adopted its opinion on the risks in June. Um, Now, the European Commission has asked the Risk Assessment Committee to reassess the health risks of lead based on data from the European Food Safety Authority, EFSA. More specifically, they were asked to develop a supplementary opinion on the risks from ingesting lead through game meat. This supplementary opinion has now also been adopted. Let's start with you then, Tim. Um, what was looked at and what was the outcome?
1: The commission asked us to look again at two data sets from EFSA. Now, the first one was on game meat intake or consumption. And the second one was on lead concentrations in that game meat. And this was after we had adopted our original opinion in June of this year. And it was really intended to give the public time to check the data and send any further evidence and comments to us that might be useful. And it gave stakeholders uh, a possibility of interacting with the process further. So a consultation ran from 6th of July to the 6th of October. So for three months, and we received 39 comments in total. Unfortunately, only a few of these were really related to the assessment of the EFSA dataset. A lot of them went back over ground, we'd already covered in the uh, restriction opinion.
0: Are you able to say more about what kind of input you received, and what impact did it have on the opinion in addition to EFSA's data?
1: Well, we have thoroughly looked at All the data that came in through the consultation, we confirmed our conclusions from the original opinion in June, by and large. And we consider that there is a moderate to high risk from exposure to lead in game meat for children, particularly for infants and toddlers in hunter families. And we also think that the risks for adults are likely to be low, just as we found the first time. So that hasn't changed in any way. We also note, based on data from the consultation, that the EFSA data probably underestimates lead concentrations in small game meat in particular, and this may result in an underestimation of the total health impacts in children. So that was that was a finding we were able to firm up on through this consultation.
0: Right, so the EFSA data then actually gives rise to even more concern. I'm thinking of what you said about the data underestimating the concentrations of lead and consequently the health impact than on children.
1: I think that's correct, yes. On, on balance, this second look at the data underlines our concerns, yes. Right. Um, I'd also like to mention that we consider there to be a high to moderate risk from exposure to lead in game meat to pregnant women. And this conclusion is based on a qualitative assessment of the risks that we did in the original opinion and not on the EFSA data. So this conclusion is part of the opinion adopted in June. And that's the reason pregnant women were not mentioned in our supplementary opinion. And I just wanted to clarify that in case anybody thinks we missed something or that uh, that hasn't been considered.
0: Um, Could you go back and briefly summarize the June opinion for our listeners?
1: Sure, the committee considered that the use of lead in these activities poses a risk that is not adequately controlled, and that's what a restriction is supposed to assess. And that the proposed restriction is the most appropriate EU-wide action to address those identified risks to the wildlife, to people, and to the environment. So this this is more than just the human health risks we were assessing in this supplementary opinion. It goes much deeper.
0: Right. So what exactly did the committee look at and what was the outcome?
1: Now, during opinion-making, the RAC members analyzed the available scientific studies, and there were many, on the risks of lead to wildlife, in particular birds, to livestock, to people, and to the environment, including water and soil. Um, The use of lead ammunition and lead in fishing poisons millions of birds and can contaminate soil and groundwater around shooting ranges. Lead is a known toxic substance. It's harmful to children's neurological development, even in the smallest of quantities. RAC supports a transition to a much more sustainable outdoor shooting and fishing to protect the environment, but also to protect people's health.
0: Let's then move on to the socioeconomic analysis uh, perspective. So over to you, Maria. What did the committee conclude?
2: Uh, thanks, Adam. Yes, yeah, so basically we agree with RAC that a restriction under REACH is the most appropriate measure to uh, reduce the risk. That is also an EU-wide measure, and we are talking here about risks to wildlife, to people, and to the environment. Um, so. We have looked at the particular restriction that was proposed by ECA, And first of all, we found it to be proportionate. And uh, for this, I must highlight that we looked at cost impacts from many sides. We didn't just look at the cost to shooters, hunters and fishers, and also on the benefit side, we didn't just look at the emissions prevented. So we looked at it quite widely. There were a couple of areas where we proposed some changes and I will highlight two of them, which are probably the the bigger ones and the more interesting one to, to, to discuss today. So the first one is the issue of uh, lead gunshot for hunting and particularly the uh, transition period there, uh, how much is required. So in the original proposal, they had uh, suggested five years to transition to the alternatives. Um, However, when SEAC started to have a look at the evidence, it became clear that alternatives are widely available here. All the major suppliers have lead-free products. Also, we know that the restriction of lead gunshot in wetlands will start applying in February, and we're expecting that that will lead to supply uh, growing as well. So in conclusion, SEAC thinks that it could be shorter. We think that we, they need 18 months as a minimum, um, but we can't really be more exact. We just know that it should be shorter than, than five years.
0: Okay, so in other words, the recommendation is essentially to speed up the transition and to minimize the negative impact that would result from the continued use of lead in hunting.
2: That's, that's it. So the benefits of uh, banning uh, lead gunshot in hunting are definitely greater than the cost. This implies that the phase out should be as fast as possible. So we should only allow enough time to transition as is absolutely necessary. And that's what SEAC uh, what is proposing.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about the derogation for lead gunshot in sports shooting?
2: Yes, indeed. That's the second issue that I would like to highlight. So um, the proposed uh, option, the preferred option uh, that Eka has uh, has made is that there should be uh, a full ban on the use of lead gunshot for sports shooting. However, uh, there was an option provided in case decision makers would like to not impose a full ban and provide uh, some derogation uh, and allow this this use. So in those cases, uh, SEA considers that the derogation should be limited to the short sizes that are actually used in sports shooting, not for everything. So it would be only for shot sizes between 1.9 and 2.6 millimetres.
0: And this is so that all the other shot sizes used for other types of shooting would still be banned.
2: The idea is to keep enforcement as simple as if and effective as as possible. So, if we ban uh, lead gunshots altogether, then yes, that's simple. So you can just go to the shops and make sure that, they are, that the lead gunshot is not is not sold. Uh, however, if we have an optional derogation, then there is a risk that there could be lead gunshots on the market uh, used illegally for hunting. So. When we limit the shot sizes, then this becomes a little bit less of an issue, so the enforcement could be a little bit better.
0: Now, I want to go back to what you said earlier about having looked widely at potential impacts, so not just costs and emissions. Could you tell me more about those?
2: On the benefits, we did look at the emissions and also had some other wider quite different impacts. But I think I would also like to um, highlight that uh, SEAC recognized that unquantified benefits are likely to be significant as well. Uh, only part of the benefits have been quantified and looking at them is, it is clear that it underestimates the benefits so for example um, the quantified impacts do not cover all the species prone to primary poisoning uh, it doesn't uh, look at issues like ecosystem health and ecosystem services so you know there are, there are quite a quite a few different types of impacts that have been described qualitatively uh, but not quantified or monetized um, but also in the cost we didn't um, Look at this in a limited way. So, for instance, one of the areas that we looked at is hunting as an activity. We looked at whether there would be expected to be um, um, a change in, uh, you know, the, the, how much hunting would be done. SEAC, um, after considering all the evidence and based on the real life experience of uh, particular jurisdictions where the ban has been imposed, uh, concluded that there isn't any long term drop expected. There could be a short term, for instance, hunters needing to, to retrain to be able to, to use uh, non-lead ammunition. Uh, but in the long term, we don't think that this is going to have an impact.
0: You mentioned examples from other jurisdictions, so so other countries. Um, I'm guessing you mean countries like Denmark and the Netherlands, where national bans have already been in place for many years.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. That's, that's what we're talking about here and the evidence that we took into account. Um, Another issue that SEAC looked at very closely was the issue of the availability of shooting ranges for military training. So there, there was a concern about whether the number of ranges could decrease uh, because there are some minimum requirements that are being proposed for them to be able to operate. Um, So there, we have heard those concerns. We understand them. Of course, in the current situation, this is something that we are very conscious of and we can relate to very well. So first thing to note there is that military ranges are not included in the, in, in the proposed restriction. That's, that is out. Um, however, we know that there is an issue with civilian ranges and that in many countries, reserve soldiers may train there to be in a state of readiness for, for anything that could happen.
0: Right. But if I understood correctly, we're not talking about uh, an outright ban. So just requiring these ranges to take measures in capturing and disposing of the spent lead.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, um, we know that there are regional differences in how many ranges we we'll need to upgrade or what proportion of ranges in a particular country would we'll need to upgrade. We know, for instance, that in places like Germany, uh, this should be fine because most of the ranges are already complying with the requirements. Um, however, in other places, more of the shooting ranges existing today may, may actually need to act. Um, we are proposing to have a five-year transition period in order to um, actually install the the required um, risk management measures. And SEAC has assessed the situation and considers that this is a reasonable time in which to upgrade the risk management measures. And also... We note that there is an exemption possible in the interest of defense, and that can be brought in by the different member states. Uh, This is, of course, stated in the REACH regulation. So if there is a real concern from particular member states, they can take advantage of that possibility.
0: Um, What about ensuring the supply of lead ammunition for military use?
2: Well, first of all, also to highlight that military uses, including manufacture here, they are not covered in the proposal. But again, there could be an issue related to the coverage of the of the civilian uses. So there is an argument that there could be some indirect effects because we know that there are production lines that are shared between military and civilian uses. And uh, the idea is that the civilian lines are then available to convert suddenly into military use if uh, there is a sudden conflict that, that requires that. SEAC uh, has considered that and does not expect this to have a major impact. Uh, we know that sports shooting with lead bullets can continue, uh, so the production lines are expected to still be available because there would be enough production for the use in sports shooting. I'll highlight as well that the exemptions for in the interest of national events are also possible for this, so also that needs to be considered.
0: okay, an important distinction here also then earlier you mentioned alternatives already being available. But what about their costs? Um, we talked about this in our previous episode, but just to remind our audience, would switching to these alternatives result in additional costs for hunters? And what kind of costs are we talking about?
2: Yes, one of the things that we have looked at is what the extra cost would be to individual hunters. We think that that is probably the the most useful way of thinking about it. Uh, for gunshots, we think the cost per hunter would be under 30 euros per year. And uh, for large caliber or small caliber bullets, it would be under 10 euros per year. Uh, There are, of course, different costs, including that, whether it is the alternative ammunition, testing and modifying guns, all sorts of things. But uh, in total, this is what we would expect. And in terms of the alternatives that we're talking about for gunshot, we are talking mainly about steel, bismuth and tungsten. And for bullets, we're talking about copper.
0: And of course, when comparing with the costs saved from the health and environmental benefits of the restriction, these are quite far apart.
2: Yes, our conclusion after evaluating in a lot of detail the costs and benefits to society uh, is that the proposed restriction is proportionate.
0: Then let's talk about fishing. We haven't touched on that yet.
2: In general, we support the conditions that have been proposed uh, by ECA. We were looking at derogations for lead sinkers and lures of uh, over 50 grams and also for lead split shots. So we asked some specific questions when we had the third party consultation on the opinion that we agreed six months ago, but unfortunately we received uh, no real information that we could use to, to conclude. So basically we cannot conclude on those, uh, whether those derogations would be required on socioeconomic grounds.
0: And can you just explain why over 50 gram sinkers and lures were considered for derogation? I mean, in my mind, heavier means more lead and so more negative impact.
2: Yes, for those heavier sinkers, there is a bit of an issue with the alternatives um, where we are not very sure that there could be enough alternatives that would, that would work for that size. In terms of the risk, the risk is not so much about birds eating them, but about a risk from home casting. So people melting lead at home and making their own sinker. So the reporters were thinking about whether there could be a way where uh, sinkers could be allowed if it was clear that they had been industrially manufactured. And for that, they were looking at the potential for labeling those sinkers. Um, so again, we looked for more additional information on that, but uh, there's no real, no, no real data that we can base a conclusion on a derogation there. So at the moment, what we've got in the, in the opinion is simply raising the, the issues that we see in this.
1: I'd like to add that from a risk perspective, the rack opinion was actually quite clear that derogations for small split shots and sinkers greater than 50 grams would not be justified.
0: All right, thanks for that, Tim. Um, If we still continue with fishing um, with you, Maria, can you tell me more about what alternatives are available?
2: Well, there are multiple alternatives, actually. Um, So we've got, for instance, those made with tin, tungsten, glass, and there are also various alloys. And as far as the prices go, they depend very much on what material is chosen, uh, and they are all over the place. So some are comparable to lead, and an example of that would be stainless steel. We can have also some that are cheaper than lead, bronze is one of them, and uh, actually others then can be much more expensive. So if we go for tungsten, then that would be the, the case there. The available information suggests that extra cost for an individual fisher would be around 30 euros per year.
0: Okay, so similar to what the hunter hunting with a gunshot would would end up paying. Um, so the next step then is that we will send the proposed restriction and the opinions of both committees to the Commission. And this will happen early next year, right?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, we, we have to have some time for administrative checks to give it a final read. And then the package is ready for the Commission. So Commission will then take a decision on it together with the EU member states.
0: Okay, moving on from lead then um, to another restriction proposal where the Socioeconomic Analysis Committee adopted its opinion. This was the one on PAHS's in clay targets for shooting. These are very persistent in the environment. They build up in people and animals, and they're toxic, and they can also cause cancer. Um, We discussed this restriction in depth in our podcast in September, and for our listeners, the link to that is in this episode's description. Now, the draft opinion has since been through an open consultation. Maria, did you receive anything that impacted the opinion?
2: Yes, we actually received two comments, and they were both looking at the availability of uh, binder materials and about the impact of switching to, to alternatives. So both of them touched on the need for a transition period with a higher concentration limit. Um, and whether this was actually needed for companies to be able to switch to the alternatives. And uh, both uh, comments were supporting that the uh, transition period would be needed in current circumstances.
0: You spoke about the transition period already in September, and you mentioned that a temporary higher limit might be needed if the alternatives to PAHSs, so meaning the eco and natural resins, would fall under trade sanctions with Russia. Um, Is this now the final conclusion of the committee?
2: Yes, it is, but we have refined that conclusion a little bit. So the proposed restriction that was submitted by ECA, that introduces a transition time of one year with a higher concentration limit, which would be 1%. uh, And that is to give companies time to adapt their supply chains, their production lines, and be ready to to produce with the alternatives. Um, So SEAC has looked at what would happen during that one-year transition period. So basically, during that year, there would be further emissions. And we analyzed the evidence that is available to see whether there was evidence that there would be switching costs to, to the companies. And SEA uh, considered that the evidence doesn't support that assumption. So uh, in normal circumstances, a transition period of one year would not be necessary and the restriction would come into force straight away. Um, however, it considered that a transition period of one year is justifiable in circumstances where the supply is somehow impacted. And particularly in the current situation with trade sanctions on Russia, there it, there is some information in the... Um, comments in particular that, indeed, there are some issues there. In the end, SEAC uh, continues to say that in normal circumstances, no transition period is needed. Uh, But it also says that uh, when the uh, supply is disrupted, as it is currently, uh, SEAC prefers a limit of um, 0.1% over the 1% that was proposed. So this basically would remove clay targets using cold pitch, high temperature and petroleum pitch immediately from the market.
0: And here's well, the opinions will now be sent to the commission.
2: Yeah, so again, we will do the final checks, read the whole thing once again, and then send it over to, to the commission to start the decision making process.
0: Let's move on to the Risk Assessment Committee and its opinion on the occupational exposure limits for cobalt and inorganic cobalt compounds. Cobalt occurs in nature, so in rocks, water, soil and plants. And one cobalt compound is actually vitamin B12, so something that's essential for our health. However, they're also known to be hazardous. Tim, could you tell us a bit more about cobalt? Uh, What are the concerns and where is it used?
1: cobalt is mainly mined as a byproduct from copper and nickel mines so it's uh, it's unearthed uh, in the same place as copper comes from um it's one of those essential elements indeed so it's needed for the formation of vitamin b12 and in turn b12 is needed to form red blood cells and dna and it's also a key player in the function and development of brain and nerve cells so very important all around RAC has quite a history of evaluating various aspects of cobalt. So we started in 2015, 2016, by developing a dose response relationship to estimate the cancer risks from cobalt. Then in 2017, we moved on to recommend an update to its classification and labeling. Cobalt has a harmonized classification in the EU. It may cause cancer and damage fertility. It's suspected of causing genetic defects as well, and it may cause allergic skin reactions, allergy or asthma symptoms, or breathing difficulties if inhaled. And in addition to that, it can cause long-lasting harmful effects to aquatic life. So quite a, quite a series of potential effects from cobalt. Um, lung cancer observed in animal studies and other respiratory effects observed in exposed workers are the main critical toxic effects of cobalt metal and its soluble inorganic compounds that we look at.
0: And about the uses, how is it used?
1: The, the three main uses of cobalt and its inorganic compounds are in battery production for electric vehicles, for things like tablets and smartphones, nickel based alloy production, and in the manufacturing of tools, it provides a very high energy density, which boosts battery life. So it seems to be very important
0: industrially as well. Okay. So indeed used by many important industry sectors. I understand that the committee has also given its recommendation for limit values concerning worker exposure as air limit values. Now, a few years back, there was also restriction proposed for cobalt salts. Was that restriction used also for the OEL, so the Occupational Exposure Limit opinion?
1: Um, This work on OELs, in fact, stems from that restriction work that was the the first uh, pass we gave it. And when RAC gave its opinion on the proposed restriction, it was on five soluble cobalt salts, so a limited uh, view of cobalt. And we recommended that a binding OEL was needed and that that should be developed for cobalt compounds in general to protect all workers. So yes, in the end, the restriction process was terminated by the European Commission, and a new request for an OEL came to ECHA in July 2021. And on that basis, uh, ECHA prepared a scientific report, and RAC has now given its opinion on that report.
0: All right. And so what are the conclusions?
1: Well, we recommended an occupation exposure limit, an OEL, of 0.5 micrograms cobalt per meter cubed in the air. And that's for the respirable fraction that's the fraction which reaches deep into the lungs and can cause chronic inflammatory lung effect. There's also an OEL of one microgram cobalt per meter cubed for the inhalable fraction, which usually only reaches the upper airways and could cause a different spectrum of effects. So we look at both fractions as being important. And that's because the mixture of dusts in workplaces will often contain both very fine fraction and somewhat coarser fractions.
0: And how did you end up with these values?
1: These limits were derived in a weight of evidence approach based on all of the data from subchronic and chronic animal studies, and mainly on soluble salts of cobalt sulfate. Um, It's easier to experiment with soluble salts than it is for the poorly soluble ones. So most of the research and the studies are done on soluble cobalt salts. This is also supported by data on cobalt metal, as well as based on human data, particularly on occupational exposure to cobalt.
0: So what was the committee's recommendation?
1: So RAC recommends that the limits should be applied to all inorganic cobalt compounds because workers are exposed to mixtures of cobalt compounds and individual compounds can't really be separately monitored.
0: Right. And what were the main negative effects?
1: The main effects are lung inflammation, genotoxicity, and carcinogenicity. But as I said previously, cobalt can also cause respiratory and skin sensitization, and it can also harm reproduction. So the proposed OELs are likely to protect from all these effects as well.
0: And you mentioned cancer before. Has this been observed in workers also?
1: The available evidence from humans doesn't really clearly show an increased risk of cancer among workers exposed to cobalt however a definite conclusion can't really be drawn from the human data due to several limitations in the studies so in this case we rely on the animal data to be appropriately protective for humans in the workplace right um when the exposure concentrations in the workplace air are high enough this can cause inflammation in the lungs of the workers. And there's evidence indicating that such inflammation can cause genotoxicity in the cells. So damage genetic information cause cell mutations and in the end result in a worst case in cancer. The OEL value for the respirable fraction is to protect from these inflammatory effects in the lungs and thereby also protecting from cancer.
0: All right. Thank you, Tim, for this very comprehensive explanation. Can you then tell us what are the next steps?
1: We will send the opinion and the supporting documentation to the European Commission, in this case, Director General for Employment. And our opinion will support the Commission in their actions to adopt OELs under the Carcinogens, Mutagens, and Reprotoxic Substances Directive.
0: Okay. And what happens after they've been adopted into the legislation?
1: Um, Any occupational exposure limits adopted by the EU need to be integrated into national laws. And this is different from, for example, from REACH, where the Commission's decisions apply directly and uniformly to all member states without needing to be transposed into national law.
0: We can then close the chapter on cobalt and move on to setting a derived no effect level or a DNEL value um, for a substance called D-O-T-E. Is that, by the way, the right way of saying it, or is it dot? Do-te. <laughs> do'te All right. Okay. Good. Let's start with the easy part then. Can you explain what a DNL is?
1: It's a safe level of exposure. So if you're exposed above that level, it's not safe. But below, it should be safe. And this is a, this is a standard um, threshold level that we use in Reach for assessing the risk of chemicals and dote is uh, dioctyl tin ethyl hexyl mercapto it's a uh, uh, it's a stabilizer used in pvc and it's part of a it's part of quite a large family of dioctyl tins used for that purpose
0: okay good. <laughs> boy am i happy that i didn't have to spell out the full name of the chemical <laughs> um, so setting the dnl for dote is linked to applications for authorization correct
1: That's correct. Uh, Dote is on the REACH authorization list, so Annex 14 it's called, because it's considered to be toxic to reproduction. So that's the hazard that we're trying to protect against. Now, its sunset date is the 1st of May 2025. So after this date, the substance can no longer be placed on the market or used without an authorization from the European Commission. And the latest date to apply for an authorization is the 1st of November next year, so 2023. Right. Okay. Now, before ECHA receives any applications for authorization from companies, we're asked to recommend these DNELs to assist the applicants in drafting the hazard part of their risk assessment, which they then submit as a chemical safety report in the application, and that comes back to us. And we've been doing this, I think, since uh, 2013, 2014. These DNLs serve as non-legally binding reference values, which the applicants can use. And r- really in 99% of cases, the applicants use these uh, DNELs. So we, we consider them to be particularly useful. They give a clear signal how RAC is likely to evaluate these key parts of the risk assessment. And it saves us in committee a lot of time when the applicant uses the work that we have already done for them.
0: All right, thanks a lot, Tim, also for explaining the link there with uh, reach authorization. At this point, I'd like to thank you both for joining us and for your explanations and insight into the work of the two committees. It's now time to wrap up our last committee podcast of the year. For those who don't know, we also cover the work of our biocidal Products Committee and Enforcement Forum. You can find episodes on their work and many more at eka.europa.eu forward slash podcasts. Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals.